Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we are continuing through reading through Romans, and this is kind of in the midst of us going through some topical uh, topical discussions and lessons describing some things regarding Calvinism and why Calvinism is not biblical. Um, and again, I'm trying to posit accurate views about things, and so when we talk about election, we're talking about what is the Bible actually talking about, we're talking about foreknowledge and the issue of free will being brought up there, um, trying to show the biblical view of it in contrast to the basic Calvinistic concept. And again, regarding Calvinism, there's such a huge range of things um, within that movement because, you know, you've got to have a lot of apologists to try and fill in the gaps of a incorrect biblical system uh, or incorrect system that claims to be biblical. And so, in leading up to us going verse by verse through Romans 9 through 11, where the Calvinists think they have, you know, all claim, we are reading through Romans 1 through 8 to try and give context. And so, let's look at Romans chapter 3. So, Paul had just stated at the end of chapter 2 that trying to keep the law or being physically circumcised didn't make one right with God. Uh, he begins to answer some anticipated questions from the Jewish believer's perspective. And this continues Paul's use of diatribe and of a Jewish interlocutor. He's anticipating a kind of Jewish argumentation against the idea that a man can be justified by faith without the deeds of the law, which is kind of the thesis statement that he starts with in Romans chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. And really, Romans chapters 1 two and three are dealing with how all are under sin and nobody is not under sin. And especially this becomes very prevalent in chapter three, where he's kind of drawing that to a close before shifting in chapter four to talking about how a man can be justified by faith outside of the law of Moses. And so these first eight verses in Romans chapter three, he has a series of three or four questions and answers. You know, three or four, I say, because some people include the fourth one in verses 7 and 8 is kind of like a little subsection of the third question. So however way you number it, he has a series of questions and then answers that he is anticipating. And notice they are all from a Jewish perspective. And that's important when you get up to Romans 9. So in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so Paul begins by asking the question, if the Jew stands under the wrath of God, as do the Gentiles, what advantage has he over them, right? Um, he answers that the Jews have a great advantage because God has revealed his word to them, to which he refers um, as oracles. And a Jew would understand that Paul is referring to the scriptures, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, and not some pagan concept of an oracle. Remember, the context is Judaism. And so when he says oracle, he's talking about that which God has revealed, his word as it has been revealed, not this paganistic concept of a person who's receiving revelations from God, you know, because they had some, you know, mushrooms or something like some of the, you know, pagan concepts of an oracle is. Um, and so even though the Jews could not keep the law in any saving way, nevertheless, it is revelation of God's will, purpose, and character. And that did give the Jews an advantage over the Gentiles. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. 
Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And that's a quote from the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 51.4, where David is praying in repentance whenever Nathan the prophet comes to rebuke him for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah being killed. And he addresses an important consideration because he is in essence anticipating an argument that if this is all true, that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, and man is not under the law, and since the majority of Israel did not believe on the true Messiah, that is Jesus, does the new covenant invalidate God's faithfulness to his people Israel, right? Is he casting them off? Because um, they had all these promises and all sorts of stuff. And he's like, well, if this is true, and it's not going by the old covenant and all these things, the sign of circumcision, the sign of the Sabbath, and all sorts of stuff, that these are God's special people, does this mean that God has like, cast away his people? You know, does their unfaithfulness to the law and of God's promises mean that God is just casting off all promises? It's pretty much the essence. And this question Paul deals with at length in chapters 9 through 11. And this is why the idea of the Jewish interlocutor, right, these anticipated viewpoints from a Jewish believer's perspective, it plays very much into the understanding of chapters 9 through 11, which people don't understand, for mainly because Calvinists have greatly distorted the waters. They want it to be about one thing, but it's not. It's about something else, at least how they apply it. But here, he just gives a brief answer, and he'll return to the ideas, you know, back in in chapter 9 especially, where he says, absolutely not. On the contrary, it enhances God's faithfulness. Israel's unfaithfulness to God makes the contrast of God's faithfulness to his promises clearer. And so then there's an anticipated argument in response to that. In verses 5 and 6, he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And he's like, I am speaking in human terms. And he answers, May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? And so Paul gives a third anticipated question. And it's, if man's sin... And his unfaithfulness makes God's righteousness all the more apparent by contrast, then how can God judge mankind for sin when God is the one who supposedly benefits from it? And he's addressing a particular interpretation of Psalm 51.4, which he references and he just quoted, which would make the text make David mean something along the lines of, uh, you know, David saying, I have sinned against you only so that you may be justified. And in essence, some Jews and some rabbis argued that it is because man sins that God has opportunity to demonstrate his righteous judgment. If man did not sin, then God could not do that, so they argued. And so if this is true, then how could God condemn man for what for that which he has opportunity to demonstrate his righteous judgment? In essence, it's like man's sin and iniquity justifies God's righteousness, is pretty much what some of the Jews and some people were arguing, and this is what Paul is anticipating. And this is actually a concept that some people still argue today. They say that man's sin originates with God because God either allows it to happen or wills it to happen so that he can show his righteous judgment against him. 
And so when Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms, he may be referring to comments by rabbis who made borderline blasphemous statements to that effect. Um, Paul immediately discounts the entire notion that man's sin in any way justifies God's righteousness, or that it is it's uh, it presupposes it, right? As though it's necessary for God to be seen as righteous. And it's kind of it kind of bases it on really what is known about God from the Old Testament scriptures. God is a righteous judge who renders to every man according to his deeds. He is not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. If God was in any way partial or a respecter of persons, then he would not be fit to judge the world. This, Paul states emphatically, shows why that view is incorrect. It is entirely incompatible with the God of Israel to do anything other than judge righteously. Um, and a couple of verses uh, that you could use in the Old Testament, there's so many. Uh, Genesis 18.25, when Abraham is talking with God, and he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. And he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And so it's it's kind of like this, this very, it's very assumed that if God is judging the world, then God is judging the world because he is the one right to do so, and he is doing it rightly. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And also in Job 34.17-19 says, Shall one who hates justice rule? And will you condemn the righteous mighty one who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked ones, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? And so it's just, it's assumed that God is a righteous judgment. And so this idea that man's wickedness or his sin and unfaithfulness in any way is necessary to demonstrate the righteousness of God and thereby make God unrighteous for judging him, it's just dismissed out of hand. It's completely inconsistent with God and the scriptures. And so Paul continues, and this is the one that kind of some people consider it to be a separate question. Uh, fourth question, or they consider it to be like a separate, a kind of sub, you know, clarification of the third question. But in verse chapter three, verse seven, he says, "But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Their condemnation is just." So, again, Paul's anticipating arguments from these, this Jewish interlocutor perspective. And Paul argues based on the fact that God does punish sin. His character, known from the Old Testament scriptures, shows that he is a righteous judge, and this is assumed by Paul as true. The fact that God does punish sin shows that it is righteous for him to do so. The argument itself that, you know, my sin leads to God's glory is nothing more than a, an attempt to say that the end, God's glory, justifies the means, my sin. And so he takes this line of reasoning to its absurd conclusion. You know, it's a reductio ad absurdum. If sinning on man's part leads to God's glory, then why don't we just encourage people to sin? And so Paul's like, well, if that were true, then why don't we just encourage people to sin? Because if your argument that, you know, Man's sin 
is the means to justify the end of God's glory, you know, then consist logically consistently, it's like then we should just be telling people to sin all the more because it just makes God look all that more righteous. And this reductio ad absurdum shows the fault of the argument. Paul's conclusion on the matter is that those who say such things show their own condemnation. It's just apparent their condemnation's just. And the libertine idea that the end justifies the means is wrong. Um, no man can argue that sin is even tolerable by the righteous God of heaven. Now, especially not, nevertheless, you know, necessary. So Paul picks this idea up again in chapter 6 in order to show that a believer being justified by faith without the works of the law, like he had said in chapter, he says in chapter 3, verse 28, cannot in any way lead to antinomianism or living without commandments from God. Believers are said to be dead to sin and cannot live in them anymore. And Romans chapter 3, verse 9, the first part, he says, What then? Are we better than they? And so since Paul has mentioned that the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles and that they have the revelation of God's word, the oracles of God, he asks the question of whether or not this means that the Jews are in any way superior to the Gentiles because of this. And to which he answers, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And so Paul emphatically states that the Jews are under sin the same as the Gentiles. To be under sin means to be under its guilt and its power. And then Paul goes on to quote six different Old Testament passages to make his point beyond argument. You know, it's not just his line of reasoning, which says that all, Jew or Gentile, are condemned in the sight of God, and all are universally under sin. It's Scripture itself which plainly states it. And he starts um, in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. He quotes... Uh, verse 10 through 12 uh, is one quote. Uh, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And this is a quote from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. It describes the state of mankind without the prevenient grace of God. Man without being drawn by the Spirit of God, has nothing in him that makes him desire God or righteousness. And this is consistent with the idea of total depravity. Um, the fallen nature of man is a biblical doctrine, um, but the links to which Calvinists apply it are more than Scripture can justify. Um, but here, Paul is emphasizing man's sinfulness and his very character, right? And so verses 13 to 14, uh, he says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And see, this is like a series of quotes from the Old Testament from different places. He's like he's he's really stacking them on top of each other and just overemphasizing. It's like no, this is throughout the Old Testament. It says it over and over and over again, right? And so this the uh, just thirteen verse thirteen and fourteen is a combination of three separate quotations from the Old Testament. He says. Uh, it's a combination of quotes from Psalms 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, and Psalm 10, verse 7. And he goes on um, in verses 15 through 17. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. 
And this is a quote from Isaiah 59, uh, verses 7 through 8. And so emphasis, and always whenever the picture of feet and, and what they're doing is like it's usually a picture of how a man walks and kind of of his conduct as a whole, right? So it's like this: their feet are swift to shed blood and these sorts of things. It's kind of describing just their whole general character and how they walk. And in verse 18, Romans chapter 3, Paul says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is a quote from Psalm 36, verse 1. And really, when you say the fear of God, it's a general term for just following the Lord in the Old Testament. You know, it says the fear of the, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it says in Proverbs chapter 1. And so it's like if there's no fear of God before their eyes, then there's no real knowledge, there's no real wisdom, there's certainly no relationship with God. And so Paul kind of rounds out this section by making a conclusion to his line of reasoning. In, in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And he says, uh, so Paul makes a final conclusion to his line of reasoning here. Um, the law was given to the Jews. Only those who have the law were under the law. But it stands to reason that if the people of God, the Jews, who were condemned even when they had the advantage of the law, that the whole world then has no chance. You know, if this one group of people that is God's people had no chance even when they had that advantage of God's revelation to them, and they had no chance to be justified themselves, then there's absolutely no chance for the Gentiles who didn't even have that advantage to be justified. So all the world is condemned by this. There is no self-justifying for any man. All mankind, Jew or Gentile, are shown to be condemned and under sin. Um, he goes on, the law was not given to justify man of his sins before God. And so we talk about the purpose. He says, uh, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sin. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, right? All that comes by the law is that contrast. The law can only bring accountability. That is its purpose. Paul uses the phrase no flesh to show the universality of this condemnation, not just talking about the Jews now, then all flesh, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And so everybody, Gentiles too, are condemned also. And Paul begins to kind of shift his line of thinking to not just trying to make an argument for it at this point. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.